welcome to Value-Based Care Insights, brought to you by Illumina Health Partners, a national healthcare consulting firm focused on improving the strategic, financial, and operational performance of provider organizations. On this program, we will explore trends and share valuable insights on how health systems and medical groups can optimize their performance to meet the demands of this increasingly complex healthcare environment and shift to transform the delivery of care. Value-Based Care Insights is hosted by Daniel Marino, managing partner of Lumina Health Partners. Daniel has been in the industry for over three decades and specializes in shaping strategic initiatives for organizations in areas such as population health, clinical integration, physician alignment, information technology, and data analytics. For additional insights, visit luminahp.com and sign up for our newsletter. Dan, over to you. Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights. I am your host, Daniel Marino. As we've talked about value-based care numerous times on the show, there continues to be a lot of discussion around the pace of transformation from fee-for-service into value-based care. There was an interesting article that came out, oh, I want to say maybe it was in the summer from HFMA, and many of the, the CFOs that were interviewed actually were pushing back on value-based care and were concerned about that pace and the investments that were required and not really seeing the returns Yet, when you look across the industry, there's still tremendous amount of momentum that is occurring in moving us to value-based care, shifting us to accepting more risk-based contracts, and beginning to identify or help or holding, having provider organizations held accountable to the care that they're delivering to their patients. It's fascinating right now the environment that we're in. And as we think about moving into 2024, I can't help but think that this transformation challenge and really the pace of which is something that we're going to continue to discuss and, and work through as we move into 2024. And as we focus on that, there's tremendous impact on the physicians. Physicians and providers in general are the ones that are really stuck in the middle of this fee-for-service value-based care conundrum, if you will. Well, I am really excited today to have a guest joining me, somebody that I have personally and professionally worked with over the last 15 years, Dr. Will Faber. Will, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, great to be here with you. Well, I'm, I'm real excited to have you uh, join the program today and talk about this discussion. This is obviously a, a topic that is near and dear to your heart. You've, um, you've worked with numerous organizations across the country in your career, helping them to, to shift into to value-based care. What are you seeing as, as some of these challenges related to, to the pace, right? The pace of moving from fee-for-service into fee-for-value. Well, we're constantly having to adapt and we're having to adapt as providers. And I will be sharing today my point of view. My point of view is that as value-based care is growing, and I'm going to make a case for it may be growing more than we think it is, or we often recognize that it is, um, I'm in it for the physicians and I'm in it for the patients. I'm in it for the providers of the health care. I myself am a primary care doctor, practiced for many years in lots of settings, and I care about population health. I love getting better 
quality results and outcomes for patients at a lower cost by cutting out waste and unnecessary utilization. Um, and as the shift occurs, it seems like the insurance companies are making as much, if not more money than they ever did. And executives of large organizations are still making astronomical fees. Sure. But primary care, primary care doctor income relative to inflation and relative to the incomes of other specialists have not gone up very much. Yeah. And yet value-based care brings with it a lot of things that primary care doctors need to do and they need to document. So there's a lot more work without a lot more money. Yeah, I absolutely agree, especially on the compensation piece. So let's talk a little bit further about that. When you're working with the physicians and your physician colleagues, whether it be primary care or specialists, in my mind, there's there's three things that I think they're struggling with. One is the well-being, physician well-being, or the burnout factor. I, I think the second is the challenges they have with understanding how their care model has to change. And then third, as you talked about, is compensation. Are, are you seeing those as, as the main three challenges that are really affecting your provider colleagues? Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary of what challenges us. As we know, during the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of nurses walked off the job and a lot of doctors have sought early retirement it's just too much. They're burning out in droves. This is a huge conversation. We've got some thoughts I'd like to share about how to preserve the provider or providers so that they don't have to burn out. The elements of their compensation is changing, and that calls for a change in the care model, um, the microsystem that they work in, the operational workflows. So be happy to touch on all three of those. Do you think as these care models as physicians are being forced to change their care models, are they getting the right level of support or help from their health systems if they're employed or maybe from the community or from other partners if they're independent? It depends on the health system. Uh, you, yeah. you mentioned independent doctors and they really struggle Yeah, because if you're an employed physician, you're part of a of a network that's got resources. I worry about the independent doctors. And of course, I've been associated with you in starting a lot of clinically integrated networks that allow independent doctors to sure. participate in these. And we have to find better ways to support the doctors and support them in a different kind of care model. I can talk about uh, those specific supports if you want here, uh, any place along the conversation. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's part of what I'm, I'm seeing as a challenge, more so for the independents, right? So, you know, we were on a we were on a conversation recently where we had one of the um, physician colleagues that of a CIN that you know both of us had had worked at for for a number of years, and he is an independent physician in a, in a rural community, and he is really struggling with making that level of investment in order to support what frankly needs to occur to be successful in these, in these contracts, right? To really drive a lot of value. And those investments are around analytics, they're around care management, it's around care model redesign, it's around all of that. So, you know, again, I mean, what are you seeing? What do you think, how, how is this alignment between either the health systems, the CINs, 
how can it better support physicians in an independent environment? Well, I'll give you a, a literal anecdote from two months ago. I'm serving right now as an interim executive in a clinically integrated network. And I went out to speak to one of the independent doctors. Matter of fact, I met with all the independent doctors I could get to, at least the primary care ones. And he said, well, uh, I have had to hire two part-time people just to help me do all the paperwork or computer uh, captured metric uh, and HCC coding work just to get that check at the end of the year that shows that I did well in these shared savings contracts that we get through the CIN. And of course, I told him, it's my goal that we at the network level provide as much of that as possible so you don't have to hire staff in your small business, which just hurts your margin. Well, um, and I'll tell you, well, that's not an unusual comment from many independent physician or, or practices. You know, they 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 feel like they have to add staff, they have to add the infrastructure. And maybe it's because these CINs, these health systems either don't have the financial means to invest or they don't have the right structure to invest. Well, and let's be clear about it. Um, doctors want to practice medicine. They want to interact with the patient. They want to make clinical decisions. And so much of what payers require is proof that you did something. Sure. And that is a clerical task. It's something doctors should do as little as possible of. And one of my principles is make it easy for the doctor or the provider to do the right thing. Uh, I've talked to doctors who view value-based care, unfortunately, and uh, as more check boxes in their day, more in-basket tasks. And we need to offload those tasks to other people working at the top of their license. It's not top of license work for a, a doctor and, and certainly uh, in some cases, not even for an RN. You yeah. can have clerical people do some of this stuff that the provider, that the payers are requiring. They, they've been burned by people who are fraudulent before saying they were doing things they weren't doing and not ticking the boxes. But that's all infrastructure that needs to support providers so they can actually take care of patients. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Let's shift the conversation a little bit on the pressures or what's occurring in the payer environment. Um, you know, there's been obviously a huge shift to Medicare Advantage. There's CMS has made it very clear that by 2030, they want to get out of the management of, of Medicare beneficiaries and either have all these beneficiaries pushed into Medicare Advantage or the ACOs, yet it's created real strains on, on the physicians to understand how they need to succeed, not to, not to mention all the challenges around the administrative tasks, which have really seemed to continue to, to, to increase, which has really been a, a challenge to delivering care. What are you seeing right now in, with, with working with your colleagues? What are they saying about these increases in Medicare Advantage and so forth? Well, many of the doctors that I work with um, hate Medicare Advantage and they want to not take it, but of course they can't not take it because their competitor might take it and then they're just going to lose market share, sure. they're going to lose patients. 
and and it's making them angry all around the country. But let's not make any mistake about it. Um, Medicare Advantage is growing very rapidly in the last two to three years. Just in 2023, I think most of our listeners will know, Medicare Advantage enrollment now has exceeded straight Medicare in the United States, and the trajectory is to continue to grow by leaps and bounds over the next few years. I want to contextualize this with a statement that politicians are loath to raise taxes and they're loath to cut benefits. They want to get reelected. So the government has not done a very good job keeping Medicare solvent. And of course, it's predicted to become insolvent during this decade. CMS has said the only way we're going to make it is to shift risk off of the government onto individual providers. I call it privatizing risk. And to preserve Medicare, they're going to have to do something. We're not enjoying taking on the risk. Doctors are very loath to take downside risks and um, institutions need to step in and help protect the doctors so they can do what they need to do. Um, With all the kinds of supports we're talking about here to continue to float the boat. If you're just turning in, I'm Daniel Marino. You're listening to Value-Based Care Insights. I'm here today talking to Dr. Will Faber. Um, Will's providing a, a fantastic perspective on where the physicians are today and the benefits um, related to value-based care. So, Will, just just building on what you had mentioned with the shifting of risk, as we begin to to think about how the 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 payers are putting a little bit more pressure on the providers as we think about how they're adding a, additional requirements onto onto the providers um where do you feel like there's a there's an opportunity for them to succeed is it really being focused on say that i don't want to you know just carve out, but, you know, is it, do they need to be more focused on the high risk population? Can they really support all the patients that they need to support under these risk-based contracts? Or should there be separate care models or new care models, team-based models, if you will, that help them to succeed? What are you seeing in in terms of that, that evolution of the, of the delivery of care under these models? Doctors just have to embrace the change that they can't just um, have the individual pleasant interactions with patients and do it all themselves like many of us baby boomer doctors did. We enjoyed sitting down with the patient for a 30 minute visit and uh, sometimes talking about how the grandkids are doing and so on. Modern primary care is a team sport for sure. I've often uh, created an analogy with the orthodontist who's got five chairs running and he goes from chair to chair telling his technicians what to do to straighten the teeth of the patients. Primary care doctors have just got to be the quarterback of the team. And there's so many things that care managers ought to be doing, clerical people ought to be doing, coordinators ought to be doing. And I also make a very big point. We've got to tame the electronic health record. Instead of serving it, it should be serving us. We need to automate all kinds of processes like with CPT2 coding to capture things that the payers are gonna require to prove that we did something. 
And of course, we're trying to get patients to do things they don't want to do, like get a colonoscopy. We need to let other people go mm -hmm. chasing after the patient, chasing after the metric, chasing yeah. after the data so that we can have meaningful motivational inter uh, interfaces with our patients. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, that that infrastructure support, in my mind, is is absolutely critical. As we've talked about, you and I, and then yeah, obviously on the program numerous times, we can't ask physicians to do more work. We actually have to reduce the amount of work that they're doing and give them the tools to perform smarter and not harder. Um, and that's really where the infrastructure support comes in. That's a great pivot into talking about physician compensation plans, which you and I have helped many an sure. organization to design. I think there's some short-sightedness in rewarding doctors just for RVUs generated. That makes it sound like they are the only generator of net value. It's really a team uh, game here. And so just cranking more patients through without a thought of what the mix of those patients are, whether or not it's meaningful work for a doctor to be doing, uh, whether or not somebody else should be taking that off your shoulders, and a way to compensate the overall team for performance is probably a preferable direction to go as we evolve our compensation models. So talk a little bit about that. You know, when, you've, when you're working with organizations, and particularly primary care, um, with new compensation models, uh, what are you seeing? How are you seeing these models evolve? I think most of the organizations, they're still on a revenue uh, RVU-based model, right, of compensation. I think they've started to incorporate some other elements, but it's predominant RVUs. What are you seeing in terms of the right level of incentive alignment, if you will, between fairly rewarding the physicians related to their compensation and alignment with any of the risk-based contracts? Well, most organizations, have, certainly those who employ doctors, are dialing in more and more quality uh, dollars and not just a straight RVU model. Most of them sequester or withhold a certain amount of money that you earn back through your quality performance. But the quality performance is definitely a team game. And I think the degree to which you reward through the compensation plan quality uh, or efficiency related work is related to the penetration of value-based contracts in your portfolio. If mm. you've only got five to 10% of your income coming through value-based care, well, then you'd have a relatively low part sequestered in the comp plan for the doctors. But if you're 50 or 60%, well, then you should have a much larger yeah. amount. But going back to my basic premise here, all the doctors are doing with that sequestered uh, uh, 20%, let's say, of their income is earning back money to just become whole what they would have gotten paid right. for service in the first place. Right. They're not making any more, yet they're, in, in some cases, actually working harder, creating a lot more investment just to make the same amount of money they made before. Right. And, of course, it brings up a chronic complaint I've had, and that's the way the value of a primary care doctor is uh, accounted for in a lot of systems. Yeah, uh, they, I, they I couldn't almost agree never talk about the contribution factor to the organization, which is why you have primary care doctors to create access points to feed the whole network. Uh, 
that just isn't accounted for and it frankly uh, is a bone of contention with me and it always has been but i think it should be because the net benefit of the physicians particularly primary care to the entire enterprise is much greater than what seems to get passed on if you just look at what they generate in terms of the paltry sums that we get for our ENM work. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So I, I wanna get your thoughts on, on one other area here, Will. We have seen a lot of these, what I would call the non-traditional provider organizations. And in some cases, these big for-profit entities coming in and buying these primary care groups. And I'm, and I'm referring to sort of the Oak Street Healths, um, who was bought by C CVS, uh, obviously Walgreens and Boots paid a tremendous amount of money for Summit Medical Group and CityMD. How are you seeing this affecting the physicians? Well, I was really hopeful. I've known some of the people that started these amazing organizations like Village MD, Chin Med, Oak Street, Iora, and they were disruptors in the model of Clayton Christensen's uh, disruptive innovation model. And I thought, great, now physicians are taking control again and they are leaning into risk, which is a big point I wanna make on this broadcast. Doctors have traditionally run away from risk well, that actually gives power to the payers. Payers take the risk. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing as a provider to take the risk, you're going to get left with some unsavory things. So these doctors went out and said, okay, we'll take the risk. We'll take on Medicare patients specifically. We'll take the high acuity ones. We think we can manage them better and really create a value proposition. And I was so proud of them. It's been discouraging for me to see that as they've created this better kind of care where less of the money goes to the big payer, one by one, I see them being bought out by other organizations. And let's not kid ourselves, uh, venture capital is really leaning into physician aggregation. And so I don't blame a doctor or a group of doctors who created a wonderful a disruptor for them saying, okay, well, I guess I get to be a billionaire now, but I would like to see doctors continue to band together, take on risk, cut out the middleman, frankly, disintermediation of the insurance company, and stay true to that so you could pass the savings on to the patients and the doctors. And physician aggregation is the way to go. We've seen with United and Optum exactly collecting more and more doctors they saw this end game 10 years ago yeah oh no that's true that's true well it's going to be fascinating to see where where this goes <laughs> you know as as more of these entities start to you know either buy out these practices or just offer tremendous amount of investment dollars to to these physician practices can be really interesting to see where it goes Last question that I have, and it's a, it's a little off topic, but it's related. You know, we're, we, we've, we've spent time talking about the value of the physicians and what the challenges are, but what about the patient? Give me your thoughts for the next couple, you know, maybe the next 30 seconds or so. Do you feel like patients are benefiting from our transformation into value-based care? In some cases they do and others not very much. One of the thing that strikes me is in the world of preventive care, which I care so much about, 
we're often trying to get patients to do that which they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Want to have a healthy lifestyle. They don't want to get their vaccinations. They don't want to take the medications that would control their blood pressure and their lipids and so on. And so it's a slog for us. If the patients would go along with that, they would definitely benefit in their health, but it's really quite a task, which is why you need an army of care coordinators and care managers and navigators to help these patients do what is gonna be beneficial to them Of course, one of the biggest things that helps in value-based care is great access. And great access is wonderful for patients. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all patients could get in with the doctor's office when they really felt they needed it, or could get a hold of somebody on their care team after hours 365. So, Yeah, I can't tell you how many people I talk to who have challenge getting in to see their physicians. And it's not just a couple of weeks out, it's three, four, five months out. Well, Will, this is great discussion. I, I'm so excited to, uh, to to have you on the show today and, and to talk about these topics. Um, you brought up some, some wonderful points. If any of our colleagues are that are listening today, anybody want to get in touch with you, um, you know, can you share your your LinkedIn address or your email address or or how can folks reach out and get in touch with you? Absolutely. I live in service and I want to help as many uh, providers out there as possible do the right thing to help patients uh, thrive and, and do well and to actually maybe be rewarded better for the work that they do. I will provide all my contact information. I welcome anybody who's listening to reach out. I'll get back to you as fast as I possibly can if I can be helpful. Great. We'll include those in the liner notes and again, encourage anybody who's interested just to follow up with Will for uh, future conversations. Well, again, Will, I want to thank you for your time today and also want to thank our listeners. Really appreciate you tuning in. Until our next insight, I am Daniel Marino bringing you 30 minutes of value to your day. Take care. Are you at a crossroad with value-based care? Do you need to chart a future strategy or improve your organizational performance? Visit us at LuminaHP.com to learn more about our consulting services and leadership development programs. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. For more information about value-based care insights, visit the program's page on healthcareradionow.com or LuminaHP.com. Join the conversation using our hashtag VBCInsights. We are Lumina Health Partners, Thank you for joining us today. Until the next value-based care insight, stay well.